good afternoon on this rainy Sunday afternoon. Uh, if you have a Bible, turn with us to the book of Daniel, <clears throat> chapter 4. And Daniel 4, it's a long chapter, 37 verses. Some of those verses are, are, are lengthy. It takes a little while to get through it, but uh, there's really a very clear central idea, central set of points that we're going to be focusing on today, largely having to do with uh, our pride and humility in the face of a God who deserves all the glory and who is sovereign and in control. Um, Greg, could you open us in prayer? And also, uh, Greg was just mentioning, just uh, with the situation going on with Russia and Ukraine, uh, Greg especially wanted to pray about that too as we get started today. Uh, I, I just I saw online, I don't know where this even comes from, I don't know if it's credible or not, but I, I saw online an interview with apparently a pastor from Ukraine who just said, uh, I'm preparing the sermon for tomorrow morning. He said, I didn't sleep much last night because there were bombs going off, I heard explosions going off. He said, but I'm planning to go to church and I'm planning to have a service and to preach. And he said, you know, if the, if the building is there, if our people are there, he said, I'm planning to hold service in the morning. So uh, just thinking about, uh, the, especially the saints who are there in the midst of this time of uh, just uncertainty. Yeah. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, God, that as we're going to see today, you are a sovereign, almighty God. You are the Lord of all the earth. You reign over all nations, all peoples. God, you reign over militaries. You reign over everything. And Lord, we just pray that, especially in Ukraine right now, you would show abundant mercy to uh, the people there. Um, God, we pray most of all for our brothers and sisters that they would stay true to their gospel witness, that they would faithfully proclaim the hope of the gospel in the midst of a very scary, uncertain time. Um, Lord, help them stay faithful, help them continue to meet, help them continue to witness. Uh, but Lord, we just pray for your mercy on that whole situation, Lord. It is a tragedy, um, and it is awful in so many ways, and we pray, uh, Lord, that um, you would just intervene and bring the fighting to an end um, in a way that will benefit uh, the people of Ukraine um, at the end of it. God, we pray you'll help us just be faithful to unpack what your word has here. Uh, Lord, may we just embrace the truth of who you are. And Lord, as, as we're going to see, help us to leave here, not just knowing that humility is important, important, but feeling it in the depths of our souls, Lord, that we don't want to be proud before you, but humble. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, again, turn to Daniel chapter 4 if you're not there already. And, um, you know, the, the idea of tyrants, dictators, uh, czars, Caesars, uh, pe people who think that they basically are God because of the power that they have uh, in this life. Uh, certainly, we're seeing a modern-day example of that with, with, with Putin, with Russia. Uh, you're seeing Nebuchadnezzar-like behavior. You're seeing this sort of this incredible self-centeredness, this desire for power, for glory, and uh, really willing to harm lots and lots of people and kill lots of people in the process of trying to secure what he thinks is his own kingdom of self, really. And um, the pattern that we see starts way back in the Bible, goes through the whole of the Bible, continues to this very day. But the, the idea of the abuse of governing authority for the sake of ego, for the sake of pride for the sake of all those things. Greed uh, is, is nothing uh, new, and uh, Nebuchadnezzar is experiencing a dramatic encounter with 
the Lord of Lords in this chapter, which gives us hope to pray even for the worst of the worst people. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar is not the same man at the end of the story that he is at the beginning of this story. He is humbled by the Lord. He may be truly converted by the Lord by the end of this story. He is a, he's a different man in so many ways. He's come to know the Lord in a very different way. And uh, so there is hope even for the worst of the worst imaginable people. I mean, he, he was the guy who had uh, the king of Israel. Help me remember the story. The, king of, the last king of Israel, he had, the, he had his children, I think, executed in front of him and then had his eyes pulled out. Uh, so the last thing he saw was the execution of his children. I, th- I think I'm getting that right. But those are the kinds of things that you see. In, in Nebuchadnezzar. And by the time he's encountered God now several different times, uh, the first few times it doesn't seem like much is happening deeply, and here something pretty deep seems to be going on in, in his heart and in his life. So we're going to begin uh, by reading the opening section, the first uh, section of verses. I'll, I'll read this for us. And it's a letter that Nebuchadnezzar has written and sent out to all of the peoples. So this is a pretty amazing thing. Nebuchadnezzar is sending this as like a, a, a little testimony to what the Lord has done in his life and gives glory to the God of Israel, uh, which is pretty astonishing given who he was and what he had done. So let's begin reading in verse 1 of Daniel 4. This is God's Word. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs and how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and His dominion endures from generation to generation." I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me. He who was named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw in their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But Leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision of the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will, and sets over it the lowliest of men." This dream I, Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. So we're going to pause right there. Um, Greg, how about a word just on the introduction of the first few verses, how he begins his letter praising God? Um, Well, I want to, even before I mention that, I want to look at verse 1, because remember in chapter 3, He's wanting all people's nations and languages to worship this idol. 
And so it is significant that he is writing a letter to all the people's nations and languages in the world. And he's not going to be telling them to worship an idol. He's not going to be proclaiming his glory and his greatness anymore. Um, He is going to be, as he says in verse 2, show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. Um, And so he, he says, and again, this is pagan Nebuchadnezzar saying to the nations of the world who know he's pagan king Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, worshiper of Bel, Marduk, and all of that. Um, He is now talking about the most high God, and he says, how great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. And he's quoting here, and he does it again in um, verses 34 and 35. Uh, It's likely he's quoting from Psalm 145, where David uses these exact words. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. And so it is just absolutely breathtaking that this arrogant, prideful king is praising the God of the people that he conquered. And he's doing it without qualification. He's doing it um, it's, it's not, and this is another thing I noticed, and we'll see this. It's not, this is, you know, Daniel's God that I'm praising. This is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's God. He's just praising God. There's no somebody else's. He's direct from him to, to God. And so the, just how this thing starts, like people will probably be like, wait a minute, this can't be Nebuchadnezzar. Like this, this has got to be a joke. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't do this. King Nebuchadnezzar um, he's Babylonian. This, this is radically out of step with what we know of him. I, just, I would just say this, uh, in terms of thinking big picture on these chapters, this is really helpful. Kevin DeYoung has been really helpful to me. I don't know if you guys have watched him, but he has, he's preached through it at Sunday night services, I guess in 2019. But at the beginning of his sermon on this, he said like sort of big picture thinking about the first three chapters. He said the first three chapters have followed sort of this similar formula. There, there's been a problem and then the people, either Daniel or his friends have passed the test and then they've been promoted. So the last chapter, there's the problem. Are they going to bow the knee to this big statue? And they don't. They're thrown, thrown in. And then God rescues them. And then they're promoted at the end of the chapter. He said chapter 4 is very similar, except there's, a, there's an extra step added. And it's Nebuchadnezzar who's the one who's tested. Nebuchadnezzar faces this test, but he fails the test. And then he is sort of humbled. And then he's restored. And Kevin Young just made this point. He said so often in life, we need, sadly, we need that extra step. We do not pass the test. We're, we're humbled, and then God sort of forgives us, and we're restored. So I would just say, uh, just big picture of these first four chapters, something to take, a, take away would be when there's a trial or when we're tempted to uh, you know, worry or grow anxious during a trial hits, we want to we remain steadfast and trust God, but so often we'll give in to worry. And if we give in to worry or anxiety or fear, we are brought low. God has to sort of humble us. We repent and restore. So we would just want to learn from Daniel and his friends that we... So we want to just try to minimize that extra step. Try to just keep remaining steadfast. I thought it was just very helpful, big picture, just application of the first four chapters. Thank you, because that's exactly what this message is for us, that next step, that, that we need to be humble. And I, and I think I've, I've got to admit that I've come in here somewhat armed with an agenda, but... Uh, you hear these big words, sovereignty of God, providence of God. You say, oh, well, that's just those big theological type terms. No, that's what this whole book is about, that God is, rules over men. And, and what, what does it say? Uh, you, you just read it, Mark. The sentence, verse 17, the sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the angels, 
the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know. That, that's us. The living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. That's historically true. God reigns and rules over this universe. The sovereignty of God. I've um, been camped out on this book. I retrieved from the back room, Trusting God by Jerry Bridges. It's an old book. But he says that there's a single event, one event in all the universe that it can occur outside of God's sovereign control, then we cannot trust him. Think about that. One single event. Um, I've got to mention this because it's 40 years ago this May, my little brother was killed in a plane crash uh, in the Air Force training accident. He wasn't even flying. He was in uh, one of the pilots in the cockpit. And I heard all kinds of things from people. Now, I wasn't 40 years ago, I feel like, where I am today. But I knew that this was wrong because I heard people say things like, well, that's not God's will. God, God wouldn't allow something like that. That's the plane's fault or the pilot's fault or, or something like that. No, nothing happens. What, here's some verses. Uh, Job, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted, Job 42.2. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases, Psalm 115.3. For the Lord God Almighty has purpose, and who can thwart him? His hand is stretched out, and who can turn it back? Yes, and from the ancient of days, I am he. No one can deliver out of my hand. When I act, who can reverse it? From Isaiah 43. So on and on and on. You can just take the book of Isaiah alone and probably find 50 verses very similar to, to some of these. So God is sovereign, which means he's almighty. He reigns and he rules. And his providence is the working out of his hand, how he executes his sovereignty in our lives, both our lives and that of kings and princes. So, and on that note, with God's sovereignty is also his character, who God is, the God who loves his people, the God we can trust. And very often people try to minimize his sovereignty to, they think, protect his character. Well, God wouldn't let that happen. God must have been asleep at the wheel when that happened. And they don't say it that bluntly, but that's the impression you start to get over sometimes time. Sometimes they do. Yeah, and sometimes they do. I, I, I had a conversation with a woman one time who was not a, obviously not a believer. I was, long story short, I was just talking to a lady at a, at a pool one time a number of years ago when my wife was, was uh, doing some stuff there. And uh, this older lady, we got into this long conversation, and uh, she talked about how her husband had died in a motorcycle accident. And she said, and she knew I was a Christian, but I didn't say what I thought about anything about God's sovereignty. She just looked at me and she said, now I know you're, you're young, she said, but she said, anybody who tells me that that's God's will, and then she used a curse word. Hmm. And then, then she, she said to me, she goes, I, I know you're young. She said, but I would love to talk to you 10 years from now and see if you still think what you think about God being like kind of in control of the world. I wasn't really saying much at all. I was just sort of sitting there for most of the conversation. But she, I, I, you could just feel it of saying, if God is sovereign over these negative events, if, if he's ultimately in control even over the negative events of life, uh, she was saying it impugns his character. I, I, don't want, I want nothing to do with that God. Whereas we as Christians on the other side of the cross especially, we look at the most bleak, horrific things that have ever happened and we see that God mysteriously is weaving them for the good of his people. And that's, that, the lesson Nebuchadnezzar is going to have to learn, the lesson we all need to learn, frankly, is that 
God is the one who controls kings. He's the one that sets things up and tears things down. And, and we need to be humbled be, before uh, the truth of who he is. Well, I would say another, another thing just here at the beginning, kind of setting up what's, what's going to happen, is oftentimes the way God displays his power, the way he, you know, Nebuchadnezzar, he's how great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. You know, we might be expecting that he did some grand miracle you know, a victory on the battlefield or, you know, stopped a lava flow or a volcano. Um, the world has a very hard time seeing wonders the way we see them in light of Scripture. Mm-hmm. Nebuchadnezzar, he talks about all of this, and then what happens? It's just him. He acted like an animal for a time, and then God restored his sanity. I mean, to the world, you might, that might be laughable. It might be absolutely laughable to the world. Well, how is that a sign or a wonder? How is God showing his kingdom? Um, well, God is more concerned uh, with converting people to see his glory and be humble before him than they are, than he is over, you know, majestic displays in the sky. I mean, he does that occasionally. Nebuchadnezzar's seen him do some crazy stuff. But, you know, in light of the fact some people are going to have a hard time with his sovereignty, they're also just going to have a hard time with how he works. Because th- this goes contrary to how we work. God's going to show his power. You know, it's going to be, as people say, it's going to be a big breakthrough. It's going to be this, that, and the other. And he changed my mind for a season and then gave me sanity back. Which, which on that, that's a great point, Greg. So Nebuchadnezzar has witnessed, he's witnessed um, th- these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, get thrown into his furnace, which would be uh, unbelievable. They're delivered, right? He sees that with his own eyes, this incredible, miraculous uh, uh, deliverance. That doesn't change his heart. So what, what happens next is the Lord puts him through an incredible trial. He, he basically takes Nebuchadnezzar and throws him down. He, he just, he completely gets him off the throne for a number, it says for seven seasons, however long that was, whether it's seven years, seven months, or what, however long, for a long period of time, long enough for his hair to grow long, his nails grow long like a bird. I mean, he, he has mental insanity that goes on for a period of time. God has to bring him physically, literally down to nothing before he can be built back up. And, and so, um, kind of like you're saying there, whether it's through the seemingly positive, shiny moments or the more trying, difficult moments, the lesson for us is to, is to be humbled before the Lord, uh, no matter what is going on in our life currently. Look with me at verse 4 and 5. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. Now, this may sound familiar. Didn't this happen last time he had the dream? He has a dream, and he was at ease, and suddenly he has a dream, and now he can't sleep. He's he got anxiety. He's got fear. And I think similarly, uh, people who have ease and feel really happy with their life who, who don't yet know the Lord oftentimes are living in an illusion at the time. And it, when, the, when they begin to actually see reality, like this dream is beginning to show him something of his mortality and the, the, the temporary nature of his kingdom, and he's probably got some sense that that's where this dream is heading. That's probably why he's so disturbed by it. But just that little dream, that little sneak preview of what's coming, of, of reality, absolutely knocks him to where he can barely uh, keep it together. He becomes uh, overwhelmed by fear, anxiety. He's alarmed by the head, in his head by the visions that he, that he sees, and nothing is able to give him peace until he calls on Daniel to help him with the dream. Yeah, one of the things I would say is, one commentator just said, is the nature of life that times of ease are always temporary. Times of ease are always temporary, and how easily peace can be shattered. Even in, for Christians, like you think... So I'm just trying, I'm thinking, I often just think about applications. So I'm thinking uh, when God does give us times of ease, those are going to be temporary. Like there's going to be a trial, trials are going to be coming down, down the pipe, like in the future. And so easily, uh, Ferguson talked about how easily the foundations can begin to shake. Like you get one phone call or with the, you turn in your blood work, 
The doctor comes out and says, things don't look good. I mean, just give me one little word like that, a phone call or whatever, a letter in the mail. And it's like the, the foundations can, can begin to shake. Uh, Michael Horton, who's a seminary professor out in uh, Westminster Seminary in California, recently he, had to go, he went into the hospital and wasn't feeling well. They thought he had COVID and they tested him. He didn't have it. And then all of a sudden they realized that one of his uh, blood, his uh, heart valves had busted, I think. And they had to have open heart surgery. And he wrote a little bit, just, just a very brief bit of what he wrote. He said, it will take a while to recover completely, but I am grateful to the Lord, not only for extending my life, but for many things I have taken for granted. I mean, this is so, when, when life is going well for us, we, we just have the tendency to take things for granted. And here God brings a trial and, he's, and, for, and uh, Horton is just thinking, wow, I've taken so much for granted. God wakes him up. So I was thinking when God gives us these days of ease, or what I've called sunny days in the past is we need to cultivate thanksgiving to God. We should cultivate a dependence on God because the trials are coming and it will equip us when the phone call comes. We're gonna be enabled to trust God when that call comes if something's happened to your dad or whatever it is, if we're on the sunny days trusting him and cultivating a dependence on him and just knowing that days of ease are temporary, but trying to make the best use of those days of ease, uh, just an application to draw from that. Verse four. Well, something that's it's not necessarily related to a main point, but I found it kind of humorous. I can't remember who said this, but they point out in verse eight, you know, it's, it's different this time with Daniel coming in. Um, you've got all these guys. He brought all the wise men in. They're looking magicians. And it's like Nebuchadnezzar's just like bearing with them until Daniel gets there. Because it's not like Daniel came in last. But it says, at last, Daniel came in before me. And so it's like Nebuchadnezzar's like, okay, now, now, now we're going to figure this out. Thank you that you're here, Daniel. Now I get my answer. Um, yeah. So anyway, that's not a relevant point necessarily, but I just found that a little bit humorous. He was tolerating all the other guys until Daniel got there, which in one way, though, is an amazing thing. Daniel had built up such a reputation, not just for other things, but apparently consistently, because this is, you know, what, 30, 25, yeah. 30 years a lot of time has gone by here. after like chapter two, um, Nebuchadnezzar is dependent on Daniel. He needs him. He recognizes what God's done in him. And he's like, I'm not dealing with this until the Hebrews here. Yep. And so that, that's a neat thing, a neat testimony. Let me, let me pick up with verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was uh, Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Uh, Belteshazzar answered and said, my lord, may the dream be for those who hate you, and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, uh, and, uh, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a, whole, a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump uh, of its roots in the earth, bound with, band, with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you for the time that you know that heaven rules." from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Now, here's the command. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity, 
Now look at the next part. All this came upon Nebuchadnezzar at the end of 12 months. He was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in his mouth, in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom He will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers and his nails were like birds' claws. Now we'll stop. We'll stop there. Going back to the interpretation, this is the mercy of the Lord in Nebuchadnezzar's life. Daniel has, the, by the way, the courage and the boldness to apply the dream directly to Nebuchadnezzar, which involves saying something that no king wants to hear. Break off your sins, O king. So Daniel has the, has the courage in the Holy Spirit to say to this king who can kill him at any moment, or at least try to kill him, he keeps failing, but can try to kill Daniel and his friends. Daniel says, you've got to break off your sins. You've got to repent of your sins, uh, your iniquities, and you've got to show mercy to the poor. Uh, so thoughts on this, this call of Daniel to, uh, to Nebuchadnezzar to repent? Well, it says he was dismayed for a while. I mean, he, he knew the implications of this. Yeah, Daniel was. Yeah, that's correct, before he interpreted it. And his thoughts alarmed him. I mean, I, I think it was probably momentary fear for his own life. You know, if I go tell the king bad news, that he's going to eat grass like an ox. He's not going to be too happy. Uh, uh, and then, but then Belshazzar, Belshazzar answered and said, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. See there, he's still deflecting the, the real purpose of the dream because he, he, he doesn't want to tell him, but he does. And, and in the end, you know, uh, it, it, it hits him with a, a salvo that, that, uh, you know, and, and obviously Nebuchadnezzar ignores this, right? Because the, at the end of this, there's a year goes by, mm-hmm. and then he's up on his rooftop saying, "Look at all that my hands have built." Well, just on that point, Fred, I think it is so interesting that Daniel's temptation to change the interpretation of the dream could have been a real temptation. Now, of course, Daniel doesn't do that. He's a no. he's a genuinely godly man, but there would be a real temptation to water down the negative part of the interpretation of the dream, wouldn't there be? Wouldn't there be? You're about to tell the most powerful man on earth that he's going to act like an, he's going to have mental insanity for a number of seven periods of time. He's going to be eating grass like an ox out in the field. He's going to look like a complete crazy person. He's going to go literally insane. And then uh, you call for him to repent. That takes tremendous courage. And there would be a temptation to want to leave some of that out. There, there just would be. And, and yet Daniel loves Nebuchadnezzar enough to speak the truth, even though it is not going to be easy for anyone to hear. And as we say over and over here, we, we've got to do the same thing with our Bibles. We've got to say what it says. We've got to say it graciously, kindly, but clearly. And we can't water down the parts that might be unpleasant to the person that we have to speak to. We have to speak the truth clearly. I think it's significant too. We've talked about this before in relation to Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, initially, we might think he's, you know, he's got some kind of emotional response. He's alarmed by this, uh, but it's it always comes down to you know whether someone is truly responding to the truth is will they repent and start walking in the way God has for them. 
Because uh, Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, again, primed to hear the truth, primed to, to listen. And Daniel, again, straight out says it, verse 27, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't do that. He was alarmed, but apparently not enough. Um, and so, again, we, this is why I think we have to press the, the, the importance of repentance and faith. Um, you know, just because you feel something when you hear the gospel, when you hear the truth, it's not enough to say, okay, I feel something now. It's, are you going to respond to, to, the, to the exhortation based on that truth? You know, that's why when we preach the gospel, it's always repent and believe. Um, it's not just, oh, you feel bad about your sins. Great. It's, no, if you realize how bad sin is, you need to turn from it. And you need to start following Jesus. You need to start walking in his, in his ways. And that's exactly what Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar. And whatever fear, alarm, terror that Nebuchadnezzar had, at this point, it still wasn't genuine enough to actually lead him to change. Yeah, one, one other thing I would just say, y'all are emphasizing the, the courage side that Daniel had, which, which is fantastic, which he did. But Alistair Beck talks about the compassion that Daniel has. It, it, this was just powerful to me. And, and this is what, what Beg said. He said, Nebuchadnezzar had hauled him from his home, had, had almost had him killed in a paranoid rage, had then thrown his friends into a fiery furnace. And Daniel realizes this dream is a promise of coming judgment on the king. But Daniel is not glad that the king is facing this horrendous, God-wrought humiliation. There is no desire for retribution. He has compassion for the one who is facing it. I mean, this is incredible that he has this compassion for him. He's not like delighted that this is going to happen. And Sinclair Ferguson, this was just, I just thought, whoa, he just blew my mind on this. He said, like, how did Daniel sort of get this spirit of compassion? Ferguson said this, this spirit of compassion was conceived in Daniel's life of prayer, which is a marked feature of this book. We know he spent regular periods in prayer each day, Daniel 6. It is certain Nebuchadnezzar's spiritual condition figured regularly in his, his petitions. I thought that's amazing that Daniel was likely praying regularly for the spiritual condition of Nebuchadnezzar. And here he gets this word that something horrendous is going to happen. And he's over come with like compassion for Nebuchadnezzar. I just thought if there are people that are difficult in our life that are not Christians that we think are very far from the Lord and really are in our lives and are causing us problems, how often do we regularly pray for them? I thought there's more application there to learn from Daniel, this, this godly man, so much to draw from his life. I, well, you, know. you, you could probably sense that Daniel would have tremendous joy if there was a change in Nebuchadnezzar, not just for his own safety or convenience or ease. If, if there was a real transformation in him, that would produce great delight in Daniel himself. Like you mentioned, Mark, too, this transpired over a long period of time, this relationship, I mean, between Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel. I mean, he uh, uh, credited himself early in his reign with the dreams and with the interpretations and that kind of thing, and, and Nebuchadnezzar trusted him. And so he just kept interceding for him. Amazing. Do, do we do that? I mean, or do we just give up on somebody and say, well, you know, I'll shake the dust off and move on to the next house or something. But there's, like you say, some real care I think there's a relationship there. I mean, it's, I mean, would you, would y'all agree? Like it's our, our closest friends that we keep closest. Um, we want to be believers, but at the same time, it's, it's not wrong to have an unbeliever that you're close with. Um, I mean, it seems like the compassion Daniel has is because he's actually friends with Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, he's been there with him for 25, 30 plus years. He's, he knows him. Nebuchadnezzar knows Daniel. I mean, I, I don't know, you know the extent of their relationship, but it seems like there's, it's more than just this you know, distant Hebrew slave talking to the powerful you know, conquering king. There, it, it seems like Daniel genuinely cares about what happens to Nebuchadnezzar to where it's not just, well, I'm supposed to care for you because I'm a Christian and you know, I'm a believer and you're not a believer seems like he genuinely cares for him and like he's concerned about what this means for his 
for his friend. But he, and he still speaks the truth, obviously. But, you know, I, I think the thing is, like, we, we obviously have to guard our hearts. But we should get to the point in our relationships with non-believers that we care for what happens to them. Like, genuinely care about their, their well-being and their, their lives and, and stuff like that. I think Daniel reflects that. Um, and, and I think that might move us even more to be burdened for their salvation. Oh, that's good. And if you, if you look here at the, uh, at the passage, you can see, in look, if we're looking at verse 28, so Daniel has just asked them to repent in verse 27. Verses 28 and 29 are pretty important. All of this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of 12 months. So let's just think about the patience of God here once again. So you, you've got, I mean, you can go back to Genesis chapter 4 with Cain and Abel. It's not just as though God just shows up and strikes Cain with some sort of, you know, some sort of mark on his body. And you know, No, no, the, well, how, does it, how does it go? Cain first is feeling jealousy toward his brother Abel over a religious thing. You know, his offering is not accepted. His brother's is accepted because his brother has faith. He doesn't have faith, Hebrews 11 tells us. And so over time, he becomes more and more embittered, more and more jealous, more and more covetous of his brother's position, his, his acceptance with God, whereas he lacks this relationship. And that turns into a quiet anger and fury, and it builds, and it builds. And, and that's why whenever we have these things, we should deal with them quickly, immediately, when there's bitterness or jealousy. That this thing just festers. And the Lord obviously knows this is happening. The Lord appears to Cain and says, hey, Cain, sin is like a tiger crouching outside your bedroom door, like outside the door of your house. There, there's a tiger, there's a lion crouching outside your house. Sin's desire is to completely captivate, capture, and destroy you. It, it is festering, and one day it's going to take over, do more than you ever thought it's going to do in your life. You've got to get mastery over it now. So, so right now, repent, trust me, I will help you fight this, and you can get through this. That's the message. And Cain ignores the word of the Lord. Time goes by, and of course, it leads to the first murder, which then the Lord comes and is again gracious to Cain, even in the midst of that, with the brother's blood crying from the ground. You just go a couple chapters forward. You go two chapters forward. And my interpret my, I know this is slightly debated, but my interpretation of Genesis 6 is that God gives 120 years before the flood. That God says, okay, 120 years, I'm going to deal with you guys. And then at, at the point of 120 years, I'm going to send a flood and, and I'm going to judge the world. And so Noah has 120 years to build the ark. He lived over well over 600 years, so that was fine for him. He had 120 years to build the ark. But the world, I think, had 120 years to repent during that time the ark was being constructed, which was this massive structure. And over a century goes by, nothing is better, the flood comes. And you could go on to Nineveh, right? Jonah, 40 days, and Nineveh will be destroyed, and on and on. The, the Bible is not a, sto a story about God mainly being angry at a sinful world. It's mainly God being patient with a sinful world. And God's patience will wait centuries until the Amalekites are destroyed and the Canaanites. Centuries go by. And then before he judges Israel, uh, almost a millennia goes by. So you, you see the patience of God in this story. Yeah, I mean, one guy just said it was like this warning shot, uh, that God is sort of firing this warning shot. If you continue in this and don't turn your way. One pastor just said when he was a kid, like he would be doing something wrong and his dad would like pull off his belt and he'd hold it together and he'd snap the belt at him. Like basically, you continue down this path, this belt is coming. And, so, and sometimes even as Christians, like you're saying, God will sort of give us a warning. Like if you're dabbling in this sin, like this is where that sin is heading. You may see it with somebody who's fallen or whatever it is. And you need to, you need to repent of this sin right now. And uh, Kevin DeYoung again just said, there's almost nothing more gracious in your life than someone to warn you of the sin you are stuck in. It is because he loves Nebuchadnezzar that he warns him uh, to turn around. And just in our own lives, again, if you're dabbling in sins, God will give you this warning shot and say, you know, we need to turn around. But like one passage just urged non-Christians in his audience. He just said, you know, today is the day of salvation. Like God's given you today. Don't try to stiff arm God, essentially. Try to push him away. Today's the day to turn. And so I just think we should even say that because 
uh, judgment is to come, and you don't want to just keep, some people just think, when I get older, I'll turn, but that's like the, the, the devil whispering in your ear, just, just wait, delay, 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 but it's today uh, is another application we can draw from that. There's an urgency there, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I mean, just like James, I mean, I mean uh, Hebrews, uh, today, while well, I was today, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, turn, the, the don't two, drift. The two-sided temptation, I think, from the devil in that regard is, if you're young, no reason to get serious about the Lord now. You've got all your life to do it. When you're old, it's, you've already wasted your life. Why do it now? So it, it, no matter where you are in your life, the devil has a great reason why this is not a good time to get serious about your faith, right? You can either do that later or it's too late. You've already messed everything up. Don't, no hope going to him now, which of course, both of those are, are totally incorrect. But, but no matter where we are in life, today is the day of salvation. Uh, and and um, fl- flip with me just real quick. We don't have a ton of time to go here, but James, in the back of your New Testament, go to James uh, chapter 4. Just want to read one passage here. James 4. Here's the warning that James gives, including pride and humility. We'll start in verse... Um, I'll just start in verse 1. This is a tremendous passage. What, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So our, our options either to humble ourselves before the Lord or to be humbled, like Nebuchadnezzar will be by the Lord. Okay, we can turn back to, to Daniel 4, and we can pick back up. Greg, could you finish the chapter for us? Uh, Read from 34. 34, Yes. Okay. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, Praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Sounds like submission to me. That's, we, we discussed it, whether or not this uh, confession, uh, repentance was genuine, and, and it appears, in, in my opinion, that it is. I think we might see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven one day. That would be amazing. And that'd be amazing. Because I think this is, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is the only example of a 
pagan ruler king that has submitted to Almighty God. Uh, now, you could, you could argue that Darius perhaps did, uh, or Cyrus, or, or that, or that let the Hebrews go back, but then they recognized the power of God as well. But this is a clear confession, very strong confession, and, and humility. Yeah. Well, I mean, also to Nebuchadnezzar here, he's quoting, again, from, from Psalm 145, I think it's verse 13, uh, which David wrote. So he's quoting from an Israelite king. And you look at verse 35, go back and read Isaiah chapter 40. It's the language here. It's like he's drawing or summarizing what he learned from Isaiah chapter 40. Um, and so the scriptural foundation for what he's saying here, I mean, obviously I think this is a, an effect of having Daniel and his three friends there. I mean, again, we don't know the exact you know, nature of, of how they interacted, but perhaps Daniel was sharing the word of God and te- trying to get Nebuchadnezzar to understand these things. And so it, it finally clicked once he had been humbled and restored. But you read, just go all, all of Psalm 145 when it talks about uh, the people who draw near to God, the people that God blesses, the people that God saves. Um, Nebuchadnezzar, based on how he's talking here, at least potentially seems to fit in the category of those who belong to God and not those who are outside. Um, again, I, 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 hope, I hope I'm going to see him in heaven one day. Um, I, I think it's likely, again, we can't say 100%, um, but he's, he's quoting Scripture, and his whole praise of God is saturated in a biblical worldview. This isn't Babylonian. This isn't any. This is biblical thinking that is driving his praise of God. Um, and I mean, we don't know anything after this. this. This is the last thing we hear about him in the book of Daniel. Um, and so, you know, like with many new Christians, especially out of non-Christian, you know, backgrounds where there was no exposure to Christianity, you know, for all, for all we know, this is speculation. So don't, don't write this down as, as absolute. But if, that ca- and if that's the case, then, you know, Nebuchadnezzar would be equivalent to what we call a baby Christian. He, he gets the basic truth right. And, you know, we trust as God is faithful to work in people who become true believers he, was working, he would work in Nebuchadnezzar. Did Nebuchadnezzar forsake all his gods? It doesn't say. I'd like to think if he, if he truly is confessing the one true God like in a saving way, that part of his growth would be to deny those gods that he used to believe in. I mean, he, it was something we talked about that, that I hadn't thought about until actually today looking at it. He, in this public letter, he doesn't just refer to Daniel as Belteshazzar. He specifically draws a distinction between Daniel who was named Belteshazzar after my God. And so it's like Daniel, that's that Hebrew guy. Why, why would he make that distinction? Um, I mean, it seems like, like something more than just uh, humility, probably saving humility uh, is here. He, he's speaking in ways that seem to indicate that he's truly saved. Um, and so again, I can't say absolutely sure on that, but what it is amazing the language he uses, the foundation that he gets it from, um, and how he ends in verse 37. Again, those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. He would never have said that before, but now he does without qualification, without reservation. And he's talking about the Israelite God and he's like, this is him. And one other thing, I know we, we're almost out of time. 
What's other, one other thing that's interesting, you know, Nebuchadnezzar, what did Daniel tell him to do? Break off your sins. Nebuchadnezzar was a brutal guy. I mean, the other times, if you don't tell me what I want, you're going to be ripped limb from limb. And I mean, all this gory, gruesome stuff. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they do their thing, at the end of that, hey, you know what? If you speak a word against their God, we're going to rip you limb from limb, and it's going to be gruesome and gory. Right now, he doesn't threaten anything. He just testifies to the one true God. That seems to be a pretty big change. You know, one other miracle here, I know we've time's a factor, but is that his kingdom was preserved. That's another example of God's sovereignty. You know, when monarchs, people are always trying to get their job. (laughs) Either their own kids or somebody else's kids were trying to overtake the throne. God preserved, whether it's seven years or seven periods of time, he preserved his throne and restored him when he humbled himself. It was one quick sentence from Alistair Beck. He just said, when you have been humbled and raised up by the sovereign God, you speak more of him than you do of yourself. And just how true is that? Oh, wow. Keep praying for me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful again for the opportunity to gather here and to study this wonderful book of Daniel and uh, just rich with application. Uh, And we do pray that uh, we would remember that you, you oppose the proud, but give grace to the humble. So Father, I pray that you would cultivate humility in all of us uh, help us to, to fight against the sin of pride that is so prevalent, I think, it probably in all our hearts. So make us humble uh, before you. Uh, thank you for Daniel's example of his both compassion and courage to not shy away from speaking the truth, but he was compassionate. As, as Greg said, he had seemed to have a genuine love uh, and affection for Nebuchadnezzar. I pray that that's how we would be with the non-believers in our life, that we would have genuine love for them, that we would regularly intercede uh, for believers in our life, even difficult ones in our life that we, that we think are so far from you. I pray that we would just be faithful to continue to pray and pray and pray and plead that you would save, uh, just help us again to, to remain steadfast in the face of trials. I pray that uh, more and more we would learn not to need that extra step, uh, as Kevin DeYoung talked about, of humbling, but we would just continue trusting you Uh, in the trials hit, when the trial hits. And uh, Father, even when you give us the days of ease, which we know that they're temporary in this life, I pray that in those days of ease and those sunny days that we would cultivate thanksgiving and dependence upon you so that we would be better equipped for the trials when they do hit, that we would be prepared to trust you even when the trials hit and help us to remember that you are sovereign, sovereign over all of us and all of our lives and that uh, you love us uh, as your children and help us to to trust you And I would pray for the service that you'd be at work, uh, both through the singing and the teaching, uh, that uh, your people would be built up during that time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, Just a quick reminder, the next Sunday we will not have the Daniel study. Uh, So if you you want to come to Sunday school, please come. The Romans class will still be meeting in the the choir room. It might get a little tight in there, but it'll be good. And so if you want next week, Romans, but not this class. And uh, we also have a meal in here after the service, if if you want to stick around after the service. Thank you, guys.